0: I'm excited about the message series that we're starting, and it's simply entitled Made for Miracles, and we're going to be looking at different aspects of miracles. And at the moment, I've got kind of two favorite worship albums I'm listening to. And some of you are probably listening to one of them as well by Elevation, um, Old Basement or something. Uh, but a song called A Million Little Miracles and just thanksgiving for all those moments, big or small, for God's intervention in our lives. In First Chronicles 16, uh, verse 11, it says, search for the Lord. It's always a good thing to seek after God. Search for the Lord and His strength. Continually seek Him. And then comes this encouragement to us. Remember the wonders He performed, His miracles, and the rulings He has given. Remember, bring to your memory, stir up in your heart, stir your faith up again to remember the wonders He has done and His miracles. And the reality is, as human beings, we we love the idea of miracles, even if we call them something else. But equally, if we're honest, especially if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, we get confused by them. Why did God do that, but he didn't do that? Did I get something wrong when I asked him to intervene in this situation? But in that one, I hardly prayed and he just did something. It kind of troubles us. And then probably for most of us who've been raised in our Western culture with a strong emphasis on science and all the rest of it and people trying to explain away miracles, we wonder in our modern age, are they really real? Or did I just want to believe and therefore it became something? And when we're desperate, we kind of wonder if God will work a miracle for us. And often it's easier to believe for somebody else's miracle than for your own miracle, that intervention of God into your circumstance. So we live with these kind of questions swirling around in the back of our mind. And the enemy actually loads some of them even more. And we end up with disappointment at the unanswered prayers as we perceive it. We sometimes feel frustrated. And if we're really honest, I think sometimes we're almost angry with God because some of the biggest things in our lives that seemed like he was indifferent. He didn't intervene. And we're caught between this. Did I do something? Did I get the formula wrong? Or did he just not care about me? And I'm not going to be able to answer all of those. I'm simply acknowledging that that's actually part of believing for miracles. That wrestling match, that struggle with our doubts, our fears, our frustrations, our angers, our questions of where are you, God? Why didn't you, God? Second Kings chapter 4 tells the story of a woman from the town of Shunem, and she's actually described as a great woman, a noble woman. She's obviously wealthy, and it's in the time of Elisha the prophet, and he lives on the slopes of Mount Carmel. And his house is very likely near or on the site where Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. And fire came down and the whole nation was birthed into a revival. And it's on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. It looks up into Mount Hermon. It's a magnificent area. It's the breadbasket of ancient Israel and modern for that matter. And he made frequent trips to the capital. This is the northern kingdom of Israel, a city called Jezreel, where people like Ahab are king at that time. And he would regularly pass the village of Shunem, which is about a halfway mark between the two. And this woman reaches out. She's childless. She's a little bit older than childbearing age. And she blesses the prophet by providing meals and eventually building a little place for him to stay so he can break his journey. And one day, Elisha prophesies that even though she's been childless, she's now going to have a child. And her response is somewhat surprising. In the equivalent in our modern day thinking is literally, she says to like, you got to be kidding. Really? Me? And it's almost this disbelief. That it's going to happen. It's polite skepticism, if you like. And despite her incredulity, the prophet Elisha's words come true and a son is born. And then you pick up the story a little bit later. The boy's probably around seven, eight years of age. It's harvest time. And shes he's gone out with his dad into the harvest field and appears to get severe sunstroke, something like that. Oh, I'm not trying to medically diagnosed, but it seems something like that has happened. And he suffers an acute illness and dies. And she is obviously, like any parent, would be out of her mind, in distress, in pain. And she goes to the prophet Elijah, and we pick it up in verse 27 of 2 Kings 4. And she came to the man of God at the mountain, Mount Carmel. And she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi, who's Elisha's assistant, pushes her away. But the man of God, Elisha, says, leave her alone. She is deeply troubled. But the Lord has not told me what it is. And she's caught in this horns of a dilemma. God has given her miraculously a child in her old age and now the child's dead. There's joy, there's pain, there's anger, there's frustration. God, what are you doing? Why? What are you up to? And she's angry and bitter and you hear her words and we can gloss over them, but I want you to feel the frustration, the pain, the anger, the despair, the the incredible loss that she's experiencing. And she says in an accusing way, did I ask you for a son to Elisha? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? And I think every one of us can empathize. We can point to some moments of miracles, clear and obvious, dramatic, our salvation, other things. And then other things where it's just like, I got my hopes up and now I'm dealing with pain. Because I believed, because I anticipated and the incredible thing is, Elisha, instead of rebuking her for her harsh words that accused not only him but God, he recognizes this aching pain, this misery that now has wrapped itself around her soul. And the thing is, when in pain, we need to do what she did. She went to God, angry, frustrated, hurting, but she went to God. She went to find an answer. And when we do that, God translates our rough words, our angry words, our words of despair, our bitter thoughts into prayers. They are real prayers. That lamenting, that calling out to God, and he begins to bring an answer. And with that background, I want to jump into a miracle, and I want to... Subtitled this message, The Autonomy of a Miracle. And that word means the study or the structure, the internal working of something. And there's one miracle in the New Testament that all four gospel writers record. And in that sense, I think it's notable. If all four of them mention it, it's a key miracle performed by Jesus. And it's the feeding of the 5,000 And there are multiple feedings. There's a 3,000, a 5,000, and we can look at all the principles. There's some common things. But I'm mainly going to look at Mark's gospel account and a little bit of John. And Mark sets the scene. Jesus has been pouring out, ministering, teaching. And then it says in verse 31 of Mark 6, then because there were so many people coming and going, And they did not even get a chance to eat. Just remember that's the background. So the disciples are hungry. They've been ministering people. They consider that they've kind of been self-sacrificing, if you like. We're talking about Mark 6 and verse 31. She said, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so The first thing we need to notice that if we want to experience God's miracles, little, big or otherwise in our lives, we've got to come away with Him. The first prerequisite of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is being close to Him, is leaning in. And I know we go through seasons and up and down, etc. But let's jump into how this miracle flows and this is not a formula this is just some observations for us to help hang some things on cling to some truths and as we pursue God and seek and remind ourselves of his wonders and miracles you've got to identify the miracle that you need and I want to be kind of direct on this and you may have heard something like this before the first thing you need for a miracle is a problem and right there, we don't actually like that. We would rather just see some miracles where God kind of performs as some uh, eternal magician with supernatural powers and just entertains us. But miracles are wrought in our life, little ones, big ones, into media sized ones, because there's an underlying problem. And if you're going to go and ask God for a miracle, you first need to identify the problem. And the crowd who Jesus has said to the disciples, let's leave them, let's go to a deserted place. And on the north uh, eastern side of the shores of Galilee, there's an area where water washes down from the Golan Heights and there's massive boulders there. And it's the one place where there's no farming because at that time they reckon there's almost a million people that live around this area of the Sea of Galilee. And it's the one quiet place between the boulders. But some of the crowd anticipate where it's going and they rush ahead. And by the time they get there, the disciples and Jesus in the boat, the crowd's already waiting. Remember the disciples are already hungry. They're already in their mind sacrificed for this crowd. And the problem is obvious, John, uh, Mark states it. The people came, this is Mark 6 in verse 33. People came from many towns, ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. And Jesus saw the whole crowd, the huge crowd, as He stepped from the boat and He had compassion on them. And it's like, I think the disciples are going, oh, here we go again, him and his compassion. Like we've got compassion, but he's just got like enough, Jesus. You already poured out. You said we needed a break. And now you're starting this whole thing again, teaching and ministering. And it goes on for quite a while because late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can buy something to eat. They've identified the problem. There's no Woolworths nearby. There's no McDonald's. There's no Pizza Hut. There's no fast food. There are about 5,000 men plus women and children. They have no means of feeding them. Not only are they hungry, but the crowd's getting hungry, hangry. There's a large crowd, a remote location, and there's nothing to eat. And what would you do? And the point is this, every miracle begins with a problem, and this is the problem. Remote, large group, no food. And the interesting thing is Jesus takes absolutely no initiative except to ask the disciples to do something. Jesus waited... And the dessert until the disciples brought the problem to him. Now he knew there was a problem. John's gospel gives us a keen insight when he said to Philip, "What are you going to do to feed them?" And it says he was testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. And we need to say, God, this is the problem. It's like God waits until you are willing to admit you've got a problem. I'm not going to bring it up. You bring it up. You bring it to me. And then they pray. Then pray and tell God what the problem is. And like I said, John's gospel gives us this profound insight when Jesus engages with Philip about feeding the multitudes. And I want... You to hear this, I believe this is prophetic and significant for some people. God's waiting for you to say, God, I've actually got a problem. It's with me, it's with the situation, it's with this thing. Tell me, tell God what the problem is. And here's the thing, he already knows what he's gonna do, but he's waiting for you. He's waiting for your simple childlike faith to take some initiative and say, God, this is the problem. I need your intervention in this situation. And like the disciples, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly, we often have three reactions when we're dealing with our problems. Number one, I've already identified it in a way, we procrastinate. They don't bring this up earlier in the day. Late in the afternoon, the disciples came to him and said, this is a really remote place. There's no fast food outlets and it's getting late and we don't know how to, what to do with these people. And despite being hungry themselves, the disciples put off the problem until the end of the day. They did nothing in Jesus' waiting. Jesus says, stop procrastinating, bring the problem to me. Secondly, we tend to boss the bug. Yet they say, send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. I mean, after all, Jesus... We try to get away. These people created their own problem. They chose to follow us. They put themselves in the mess. Tell them to fix it. Pass the buck. It's not our problem. They created the problem. Tell them to fix it. And the third thing we do, and this is common to all of us, we worry about it. Jesus said, you feed them. And they go, with what? Like, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people, let alone where we're going to source it. But the magnitude of feeding and dealing with this problem is enormous. And the disciples' anxiety goes into overdrive. And the reality is anxiety and worry, which we all do, is actually the opposite of faith. And I wonder if Peter, when he writes his epistle, his first epistle, many years later, is reflecting on this, probably other miracles, other situations. When in 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares for you. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares for you. And so we need to identify the problem. We need to stop procrastinating because God's waiting for you to take that initial step of faith towards Him. But the third and the final thing is God is waiting to see what you're going to bring to it. God waits to see what you're going to do. And I don't have time to go through everything miraculous in the Bible in this message. But to Moses, to Moses, When trapped by Pharaoh's army, God says, bring your staff. You know the one that you had that became the staff of God in your hand. To the widow of Zarephath, the prophet says, bring the little that you have. The little bit of oil and the little bit of flour, bring that. To the miracle of the multiplying of the oil, go and get as many containers as you can get. And Jesus says to the disciples, what have you got? What can you find in this crowd in the midst of this problem that you can bring so that I can do a miracle? And Simon, sorry, Andrew, Simon's brother spoke up. This is John's rendition. He says, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? And the issue is, he's looking at the crowd and not what can be placed into the hands of Jesus. He's looking at the problem rather than what can be placed into the hands of Jesus. And I love that it's childlike innocence that responded. This boy says, you need a lunch? I'm up for it. You can take mine. Maybe he got stolen. I don't know. No, I I don't think that kind of abuse went on back there. The boy didn't have much, but he gave what he had and he gave it to Jesus and he gave it immediately and never underestimate what God can do through ordinary things, ordinary so-called ordinary people with limited results. But for the miracle to happen, he says, what are you going to bring to it? It might be the little bit of oil, the little bit of flour. It might be the empty jars. It might be the five loaves and two fishes because God specializes in things that are humanly impossible. If you ever use the word impossible," I know I have, maybe you haven't, you so saintly. You probably have. This is just impossible. You ought to just be quiet and listen for the life from heaven, because that's what happened when Sarah said it was impossible. Impossible is not in God's vocabulary. Jesus in a different miracle, Matthew 19, verse 26, and what they had to bring to that situation or should have brought was prayer and fasting. But Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is impossible. That's a pretty all-inclusive statement, no matter what's going on in your life, in your world. No matter how big your problem is, God can handle it. But you need to bring something. And right now, for some of you, perhaps the only thing you can bring is your brokenness, your sinfulness, the fact that you've lived apart from God and maybe even walked away from God. Perhaps for others, and I'm speaking to a broader group here, you bring, yes, your brokenness. You bring maybe a bit of disobedience. You bring a problem that, go, I'm not sure I can bring this to God because I actually created it. He specializes even in those kinds of miracles. But the first thing is to just bring yourself. And whether you've never, ever surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you have walked away, stuff happened, life happened, but you hear in my voice today, in the auditorium, online, watching on delay, God is inviting you to bring yourself so he can perform the greatest miracle of all, and that's forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life that was accomplished by all that Jesus suffered on the way to the cross, on the cross, and he's secured by the power of his resurrection. And so if you're saying yes to Jesus, whether for the first time renewing a commitment or making it real, I'm going to invite you, along with everybody, to pray out loud, if you can, a simple prayer of surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says if you publicly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will experience salvation.